Turn to Matthew 9, 27 through uh, 34. If you haven't already, that's where we'll be camped out today. This is an interesting text because in the context of the entire book of Matthew, and especially considering what we've already covered in these uh, nine chapters of Matthew, these verses seem at first to be a little bit boring. A little bit, you know, like we've already seen Jesus heal a ton of people. We've already seen him cast out demons. And, and those stories, about those other stories were way cooler, right? Like there was a guy who was completely paralyzed, lowered through a roof by his buddies, and Jesus healed him, said, take your bed and carry it home with you, and the guy did. And that's a cool, that's a cool story. Or there's this moment where Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he run into a storm while he's asleep in the boat, and he tells the storm to stop storming, and it does. And then he reaches the other shore, and these two demon-possessed guys come out, and they beg, the demons beg Jesus, cast us into a, a herd of pigs, and Jesus does that, and all the pigs jump off a cliff, okay? That's a cool story, right? So why is Matthew giving us similar stories without as much action and excitement. And here's why. The focus today is not so much on the mighty works of Jesus, although that is a focus, but rather on the reaction of the people who experience them. In other words, Matthew, for a while, he's been zooming into Jesus's power and authority. Wow, look at this guy who can do what no one else can. But today, Matthew is showing us, look at how the people responded to Jesus. Look at how the people responded to this man who can do what no one else can. And so these aren't just additional stories about healings and casting out of demons. Pay special attention today to how the people experiencing these mighty works respond. That's Matthew's focus, and that'll be ours today as well. As we sort of join the crowd in these stories, as onlookers, we're going to be spending some time reflecting on how we ourselves respond to the mighty works of Jesus. And this is what we'll see today, three points Matthew shows us in chapter 9, 27 through 34, we'll see that Jesus is able to heal us. We'll see that our ways are not his ways. And number three, we hate that. <laughs> we hate that. Okay? So let's pray for our time, and then we'll open up God's word. Thank you, God, that you're good. Thank you for the gift of your word, uh, for the mercy of Jesus. I pray that we would walk away today with nothing else but a profound love for your mercy. We'd recognize our deep need of a savior and that we would, we, we would boldly sing that all, all to you we owe for the grace you've shown in Christ. We thank you for your grace. Be with us now. Change us, transform us. May we treasure your kingdom, not this kingdom. May we be loving. May we not be pharisaical naysayers. Pray, God, for an abundance of grace by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's begin with verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men have followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Okay, so Jesus passed on from there. From where? Well, if you remember from last week, Jesus encountered a man who was called a, a ruler. And you read the other Gospels, we learn that that ruler is a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. He's this religious leader, an important figure 
in the community. And that man came to Jesus saying his daughter had just died. Okay, his little girl had just died. And he said, come and lay your hand on her, Jesus, and she'll live. It's incredible faith that we read about last week. And so we read, when Jesus came, this is Matthew 9, 23 through 26, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players, these are people that were hired for the funeral, okay? So this girl's legit dead. They've got funeral flute players like we all do at our funerals. Yeah. He said, saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, and he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping, okay? Now, he's saying, she, yes, she's dead, but he's saying it's temporary, pointing to the resurrection. But these men laughed at him. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So Jesus raised this dead girl to life. It was sort of a big deal, especially since it was someone pretty respectable who could now vouch for Jesus. Okay, it's the ruler of the synagogue. It's not some random dude saying Jesus healed him. You know, like you have that one random, you have that friend that's always saying crazy stuff, crazy stuff that they saw. Oh, I saw a guy's arm grow back in college. It's like, he also did a lot of drugs in college. So yeah, no, this isn't like that. This is a respectable, a ruler of a synagogue. He's got flute players that were hired for the funeral who can all vouch. No, this girl was dead. And now Jesus raised her to life. And so this sort of thing spread. This story spread like wildfire throughout the district. And from here, Jesus raises this girl from the dead. And then, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. In the midst of what has become a crowd, now following Jesus around, there are two blind men, and they're crying out so that everyone hears them. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, what is this about? We've heard Jesus refer to himself as the son of man. The demons that asked to be cast into a herd of pigs, they called Jesus the son of God. But this is the first time anyone has called him the son of David. And the reason they call him this is because they are putting all their chips in this basket that Jesus is this promised Messiah. They believe that Jesus is this figure described in the Old Testament that would come and defeat the enemies of the people of God and usher in an age of joy and prosperity and freedom from enemies and oppression. But very importantly, he'd be a relative of David. This Messiah, this king, this person would be a son of David. And if you read you know, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Isaiah these major prophets... You'll see again and again and again this mention of a coming day where the brokenness we witness every day will end. And a son of David will be the one to establish this new age. Scripture like Jeremiah 33, 15 says, in those days and at that time, I'll cause a righteous branch. You know how trees work and they shoot out branches? You've done 23 and me. You understand family trees. A righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And look at what God says in Ezekiel chapter 37 about this coming day, 37, 23 through 24. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. 
I will cleanse them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. That's what it'll be like when God raises up this righteous branch. Interesting to note, too, Jesus will later say in the next verse, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. They need a shepherd, the son of David. Look at what Isaiah writes. Isaiah is describing the coming of this Messiah, what it'll look like when the son of David comes to rule on the throne. He says in Isaiah 35, four through six, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And then what will happen? The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These two blind men, they hear of a little girl being raised from the dead. And I doubt they had memorized a ton of scripture. I doubt they had any sort of theological education. But I guarantee you they had heard this verse in Isaiah. A day where the blind, their eyes should be opened by this coming King, and they knew God someday would send the son of David, son greater than Solomon, greater than any other king, because he would come save us and open the eyes of the blind. And so these men follow Jesus. The moment they hear this, this ruler of the synagogue's little girl being raised to life, they follow him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. As you establish your kingdom, have mercy on us. Think about us and open our eyes. Like, you know, remember? Have mercy on us, son of David. Then verse 28 through 30. When he, being Jesus, entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you and their eyes were opened. Matthew's basically quoting Isaiah's prophecy. Their eyes were opened, just like Isaiah said. And here's his point loud and clear. Jesus is able to heal us. Jesus is able to heal us. The men follow Jesus, but it seems like he doesn't really respond to them. You see that? They're hollering, have mercy on us. But Jesus just keeps walking. He doesn't address them there. And so they follow him into this smaller context, into the house, it says. We don't know. It's either the house where Jesus is staying or it's Matthew's house where he had just eaten with this tax collector, Matthew. We're not sure. But the crowd ends up being bottlenecked and these blind men make it through. Jesus heard them the whole time. They were walking. But then he responds to them once they enter the house. Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Jesus knows what they're saying when they called him the son of God. He's hip with the Bible, you know? He knows what they meant. So he says, do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm able to open the blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, make the the lame man leap like a deer, make the tongue of the mute sing for joy? Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Yes, we heard you raised the synagogue ruler's daughter to life. We've heard that you've healed many others. We believe that you're the one that the prophets spoke of. Yes, Lord, we believe. So then he touched their eyes 
saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Now, don't, don't read, as Americans, we like to do this, don't read according to your faith like it's a gas tank, right? According to how much faith you got in the tank, that's how far I'm willing to heal you. It's not at all what he's saying. Like, it's dependent on their faith. You know, Jesus is saying, the one who believes is healed. You believed, therefore your belief is proven justified. Your belief was well-founded. How do you know? Because you can see. You're healed. And so their eyes were opened. He touches their eyes again. We see that Jesus touching what has been barred from the temple, sort of this the uncleanliness. He, he touches their eyes, this loving act of compassion, and heals them. And so here we see, though you've probably heard it a thousand times, and we've read it a few times in our sermons in Matthew. I hope this hasn't become old news to us. Matthew shows us here that Jesus is able to heal us. Jesus is this promised Savior who comes to establish justice and righteousness and to heal us and save us from our oppressor. Don't ever think that you've graduated from that news. It's not a healthy place to live. These, these, men had, these men had an obvious ailment. They were blind. That affected everything about their lives, obviously in practical ways, getting around in the ancient world, you know, being blind, that would be incredibly difficult. But in re religious, in spiritual ways as well, those who were blind or lame in any way were barred. They couldn't enter the temple. There was a, a distance between them and the presence of God. And what's really sad about you and about me, about humanity in general, is our ailment isn't that obvious, at least not to us. Everyone else sees it, but we don't. It's not as obvious as blindness. Maybe the real issue is we've grown accustomed to it. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but our ailment is our own sin. That's what plagues us, makes getting around in our world so difficult, makes relationships so difficult, even affects our religion. We are sinners. And Isaiah 59.2 clearly says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. Our sin separates us from God. We're separated. There's this distance, there's this separation. We're responsible for it, but we can't remedy it. We need a son of David. We need someone who can open the eyes of the blind and make the lame leap like deer and mute sing for joy. We need someone who can do the impossible, someone who's able to heal us. These two blind men went to Jesus for healing and he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And now I'll ask us the same question. Do you believe that Jesus is able to heal what ails you, your sin? You say, oh, of course. Oh, yeah, I'm a, I've been a Christian for a while. Jesus is my healer. Mm -hmm. Jesus is my sin savior. Been doing this for, you know, whatever, 26 years. That's great. Let me ask you this. What do you do when you sin? That's the real answer to the question. When you sin, do you run as fast as you can to try to conceal it, cover it up? Make your sin seem like it wasn't that big of a deal? You downplay it? Oh, everyone's overreacting. Okay, hold on, it's just one time. It's not that bad. It's not as bad as other people's. That's what it looks like to deny that Jesus is able to heal 
your sin. When you find yourself slow to confess sin, quick to try to cover up, explain away your sin, what you're crying out is, I I have no need of the mercy of the Son of God, of the Son of David. I have no need of your mercy. Not even interested. I, I, I got it. I don't think, Jesus, you're actually able to do what needs to be done. I don't need a healer. I, don't, I, don't, I need a healer. I don't need to make my life worser. So I'll just take care of it. When you go anywhere else to deal with your sin, you're demonstrating you don't believe Jesus is able to heal your sin. And I hope you hear this morning and see what Matthew is showing us. Jesus can heal you. He can do the impossible. Jesus is the one worth believing in. Pastor Room, you know, raise your hand if you believe in yourself. You'll never sin again. No one's going to raise, raise your hand if you're the solution to all of your problems. None of you are going to raise your hand unless you're crazy. But that's not what you do in your life all the time. Always running to yourself. You're always the solution to your problems. Isolating yourself. Oh, I'll take care of it. We wouldn't raise our hand, but that's what we do. That's how we live You're not the healer you need. These blind men found in Jesus, one, able to heal them. And may we follow in their example. So Jesus is the one who is able to heal us. And so Jesus healed them. Verse 30 says, their eyes were opened, and then it says, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. (laughs) This is amazing. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Okay, doesn't that seem like a weird thing for Matthew to point out? Matthew explicitly draws out attention to Jesus telling these guys, hey, don't tell anybody about this. The the, the Greek there is pretty intense, almost like he's shaking them by the shoulders. He strongly warned them, "Don't, don't tell nobody, nothing, okay? But then even worse, these guys completely disregard what he commands. Verse 31, they went away and they spread his fame throughout all the districts. I love that. That's just, that's us. If, if, If anything describes us, that's us. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, says, the men whose faith brought them to Christ for healing, oh, what great faith, did not stay with him to learn obedience. <laughs> that would have been advantageous. That they just stayed a little, bit, a little bit longer instead of going and spreading his fame. Jesus asked them to keep the healing on the down low. You know, he's given them their sight, but then he says, don't. He says, you have one job. See that no one knows about it. But they go away and do the exact opposite. Why does Jesus ask them to keep it a secret? I mean, that's a hard secret to keep, you know? Imagine you were blind. I mean, these guys were blind. Now they see. What, is, what, am, what are they supposed to do like, when they go see their family? They're like, uh, they're like, wait, wait, wait. How did you know it was me? How did you see me? And they're like, oh, wow, interesting. That's amazing. I don't know. Can't talk about it, though. I know that. It's the one rule. We see this, and this command from Jesus doesn't make sense to us. Right? We have this, a hard time understanding. I'm sure those two guys he healed had a hard time as well. And they might have just concluded Jesus wasn't really serious. He's just a nice, humble guy. Oh, don't talk about this too much. That's what they heard. They talk about it a lot. That's how they treated his command. They didn't understand, and we have a hard time understanding because this is our second point this morning because our ways are not his ways. Our ways are not Jesus's ways. We know that Jesus is able to heal us, 
But Matthew shows us here our second point, that our ways are not his ways. Throughout this narrative today, Jesus doesn't do what we expect. For example, as these men are crying out to him, have mercy, son of David, and Jesus doesn't respond, we're like, that's kind of rude, you know? Seems like they're being ignored. Then he heals them. We're like, oh, I thought we weren't, thought you weren't talking to them. Okay, great. Okay, they're, they're healed. And he's like, don't tell anybody. You imagine being a disciple, trying to follow up with like what's happening. He's like, hey, Jesus, some guys are yelling for you to heal them. They're calling you the son of David. Jesus keeps walking. And they're like, yeah, and they're super annoying, aren't they? <laughs> totally. And he's like, hey, let them in. And he's like, oh, yeah. Of course, let him in. Let these blind guys in. Totally, Jesus wants to talk to you. He's, they're like, oh, we should let, you know, let the cameras in so everyone sees. Jesus is like, don't talk about it. They're like, totally weren't going to talk about it. We were not. That wasn't our plan at all. Jesus doesn't, it's difficult for us to understand. Why does he do this? We see his ways are not our ways. Why does he do this? What well, you have to understand about this Messiah figure promised throughout the Old Testament, that is sort of turned into a political uh, figure. In Jesus' time, the Messiah was believed by many to be this warrior king who would come and defeat the, uh, defeat the Romans. He would make Israel great again, right? That's what people were looking for. I don't know if you've noticed this, but anytime you try to merge the worship of God with a political movement, things go south in a hurry, like real quick. Last few years here in the United States, a great case study. Hitching Jesus to a political movement is always a bad move. But that's exactly what so many who heard Jesus and who hear him today, that's what they saw him fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted this guy to come through. Crowds are following him often because they think he's about to storm the Capitol and defeat the Roman leftists. Jesus came for none of that. Not then, not today, none of that. Because his ways are not our ways. His kingdom's not established the way we would go about establishing a kingdom. Christianity isn't spread the way we would spread it. His ways are not our ways. So he tells these men to lay low, keep quiet, not go around spreading his fame in the region. D.A. Carson, again, writes, these commands to be silent so that Jesus is not presenting himself as a mere wonder worker who can be pressured into messiahship by crowds whose messianic views are materialistic and political. Jesus' authority derives from God alone, not the acclaim of men. He came to die, not to trounce the Romans. The people who disobeyed Jesus' injunctions to silence only made his mission more difficult, as we'll continue to see as we read Matthew. Jesus tells these men to to keep quiet because he wants to squash the potential for misunderstanding. For anyone to start following him around, ready to start a rebellion. But we see again and again and again throughout Matthew, Jesus is misunderstood. Even his disciples think this way. You got James and John when a Samaritan village says, oh, we don't want Jesus to come in here. They're like, is this when? Should we call down the fire of God to consume this village? Jesus is like, what? Chill. What's your deal? And when Jesus gets arrested, Peter, he's got a sword. He's like, kingdom, kingdom. Ah, And he chops off a guy's ear. Jesus is like, put away your sword. That's not, my ways are not like your ways. That's not how this 
is happening. That's not how I work. His ways are not our ways. And here's why I'm saying this. I don't know where this text finds you this morning, but I imagine that at least most of us have experienced a moment in our life where we're thinking, God, what are you doing? What are you, is this really the best way? Do you, do you not, are you not hearing me cry out to you? Have mercy on me, please. Are you just ignoring me? God, what are you doing? You just need to heal my body. You just need to get me a new job or fix this broken relationship in my life or in my family. I need you to save my kids. I need you to execute justice on those who wronged me. That's what I need from you. Why won't you do it? Because his ways are not our ways. This is the cycle we plunge ourselves into. We know that Jesus is able to heal us but then he doesn't do it like we'd like him to. So then we look elsewhere for healing. Maybe for someone who will. We cry out for mercy. Have mercy on me, son of David. But then we don't follow him into the house when we hear no response. I hope that this is an encouragement to you this morning. You are never ignored by Jesus. He hears you. He graciously opens his ears, hears your crying, your pleas for help, for healing. But your plan for the way it should come about, the way that healing, the way that help comes about is probably your, your way definitely being ignored by Jesus. Definitely. Because your ways are not his ways. Don't mistake things not going your way for God not caring for your every single need. Instead, follow Jesus into the house. Don't search elsewhere so quickly. Trust that he will only do what is good, like we're reminded by Paul in Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You, you can no more make good for yourself than a blind man can heal his own sight. So trust the source. Continue to go to the source Trust his way when yours seems hopeless. Let's continue. Verses 32 through 33. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Like I mentioned earlier, we've seen Jesus heal people. We've seen him cast out demons. But Matthew is highlighting the response of this crowd to yet another one of Jesus' messianic signs. He says that they marveled. They're spellbound, okay? I don't like dude perfect videos because after they've done the same thing thousands of times, how are they still like, whoa, whoa, my God. That's what the people are like. Marvel, as if it's the first time, right? 
Never was anything like this seen in Israel. This echoes what the crowds in Galilee, specifically in Capernaum, have been saying this whole time. Hey, this guy is, is different. We've never heard teaching like this before. We've never seen people healed like this. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. This is what the more positive side of his ways being higher than our ways and better and different than our ways looks. When something just works out, when Jesus answers your prayer, that friend is saved. You find out that mole is just a mole and there's nothing else. There's these moments we marvel, we praise God. Oh man, thank you that your ways are not like mine. I would have gone about it differently. But gosh, and you marvel. And the crowds react in the same way. But then notice this huge contrast in verse 34. The Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Slowly, over the last couple of chapters of Matthew, we've seen this growing opposition to Jesus coming from the religious leaders. So when Jesus healed the paralyzed man, lowered through the roof, and he said, your sins are forgiven, they said, this man is blaspheming. Then when he called Matthew, the guy writing this, when Jesus called Matthew, this tax collector, and was eating at his house, they said, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, that seems inappropriate. But now when Jesus frees a man from his oppression, they say, hmm, I got it. He is working with the prince of demons, the devil. He can only do that. He can only get a demon to, to leave someone because he's friends with the devil. And the devil's the one who tells his demons where and when to go. So that's obviously what's going on. He's working with the devil. Here's what the Pharisees are experiencing. They see that Jesus is able to heal. That's clear. They, they never say, that guy wasn't really healed. None of the gospels. The Pharisees always go, that's crazy. That dude's healed. They see that. They see that Jesus is able to heal. They also see that their way is not Jesus' way. Jesus doesn't do stuff the way that they would do it. And so what is their response? Do they, do they marvel like the crowd? No. They hate it. They see that Jesus is able to heal, that their ways are not his ways, and they hate that. Why? Because Jesus calls them to depend on God, not themselves. Real quick word on the Pharisees. We've talked about this in previous sermons. The Pharisees, they saw themselves somewhat as cultural reformers. Okay, they were the ones holding the line on, on orthodoxy, ensuring that no one was saying anything to the right, certainly not the left, or, or what they determined to be, of what they determined to be sound doctrine. And this meant a few things. Number one, they were considered to be very righteous, devout, holy people. Remember, Jesus says, you must have righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of God, which implies most people in Jesus' days considered the Pharisees to be a high caliber of righteousness, which meant that they also considered themselves righteous as well. They began to believe their status as a Pharisee meant that they, by default, were just a, a default, generally righteous group of people. And we never see that with like pastors today, right? That never happens. We never think of ourselves as holy simply because of the office we occupy, right? 
There are no stories of of great pastors out there who everyone pointed to and said, that guy right there is the epitome of righteousness, then eventually was found out to be incredibly unrighteous, living with a bunch of lives with sin unchecked. That's never happened ever, right? No examples. It's dangerous to believe you're holy simply because of your title. Whether it's Pharisee, pastor, elder, deacon, Baptist, Reformed, Christian, Texan. What's dangerous is you may convince yourself that you're indeed as holy as your title suggests. And that's where sin flourishes every time. Because you'll do everything you can to conceal your sin so you don't lose your title. You know, you know that you're not as holy as others think, so if you lose that title, who's going to defend you? You'd be all on your own. So the Pharisees were considered to be men, holy men of God, and that is a very dangerous place to live. Other important thing to note, Pharisees were enforcers of the religious law. They were the ones whose opinion would be heard in any sort of religious matter. The people in a synagogue would really depend on the Pharisees in order to know how to go about their walk with God. They were the ones with all the answers when it came to how to live, especially if you wanted to live a life blessed and approved of by God. So all that to say, they see that Jesus is able to heal, that their ways are not his ways, and they hate that. They hate it. Because Jesus calls them and everyone around them to depend not on their own righteousness, not on their religious law following, but rather on God alone. And nothing is more threatening to the self-righteous than depending on someone else, on the righteousness of someone else. And listen, this morning, so often in our lives, we see Jesus is able to heal us. Oh, yeah, we love that. Our ways are not his ways. Uh, Makes us uncomfortable. Actually, we hate that. We see that Jesus is able to heal us. Our ways are not his ways. And we hate that. Why? Because this truth threatens our self-righteousness. It leaves us dependent not on our ways, not on our strategies, but instead on God alone. It's great to talk about God healing people and healing the sin of other people. That feels awesome to talk about, but it hurts when we have to do it because it involves sacrificing our self-righteousness. You cannot say that you need a healer until you admit you have a disease. You cannot cry out, have mercy on me, son of David, until you admit the sin you need pardoned, the reason you need mercy. And the self-righteous cannot admit that his ways are not our ways. Because to do that means we have to admit our ways are focused on immediate self-gratification, self-serving. Those are our ways. Whatever brings relief for me now, whatever makes me feel justified now, Jesus, in this text, cuts straight to our self-righteousness by calling us to cry out for mercy, calling us to hold up our sin, bold, loudly, for all to hear, rather than conceal it or hide it behind a title. Jesus cuts straight to our self-righteousness by not giving us what we want when we want it. And man, do we hate that. That's our tendency. But 
Can I just implore us this morning to consider that Jesus' way is not only different from ours, but it is far superior. The way of the Pharisees is one of constant, endless, almost said never-ending, which is the same as endless, striving. The way of the Pharisees is one of constant striving, constantly trying to support the image that you're a good person, constantly trying to do more and more and more so you might convince God to bend things your way according to what you've done, your righteousness. But instead, would you consider trusting that God is good, like we sang this morning? That where you are not good, that he is good, that he binds up the sinner and the brokenhearted? That the the value of being thought of as respectable and righteous is far inferior to being sinful enough to need a savior? The idea of being thought of as respectful and righteous, that's what we want, we desire so much. That is an inferior way to live. It's a slaving way to live rather than just being sinful enough to need a savior. So as we turn to communion this morning, let's spend some time considering our deep need of a savior for a healer whose ways are better than ours. As much as we hate to see our self-righteousness be crushed Much like these Pharisees, we rejoice in communion to receive the free gift of the righteousness of God provided to us through the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I I thank you for the overwhelming abundance of stories in the Gospels that, that, that we can put ourselves into. As we see others crying out for mercy, oh, I pray that we would, if we would feel that invitation, invitation to come before you and cry out for mercy, to admit our need of a savior, which involves pain, involves admitting we're weak, involves admitting we're unrighteous, involves admitting we're not respectable. I pray that the, the temporary fleeting reality of those little treasures would fade away from our sight. As we see you, as we see the eternal gift of grace, the end of our striving, pray that we would confide in in you and you alone. Teach us now as we uh, partake in this gift, this practice that you instituted in communion. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.